The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. On your screen, you should be seeing an advertisement for an energy bar. This pictures two triumphant climbers at the tip of a mountain peak basking in the glorious view. I'll tell you what it says. You've never felt more alive. You've never felt more insignificant. Why do we love to see grandeur and feel small? I think it's because God made us for God. And that's why I love the doctrine of predestination. This is the first in a four-part sermon series on predestination. Predestination simply means that God predetermined the destiny of every individual for salvation or condemnation. I'll, I'll define it further in a moment. So I've been on a research sabbatical for the first part of this year, and my main research project has been to write a book on predestination. And before I submit my manuscript to Crossway next month, I get to share with you some of what I've had the joy of exploring and discovering. And in a sense, I've hiked up a mountain, and I'd like to show you some of what I've seen. The more you know about God and his ways, the deeper and sweeter will be the praise. That's the goal here. And we could easily devote 20 sermons to this glorious topic. Not sure about four years, as Pastor Dan (laughs) slipped there. Um, It's doable. The Puritans could do it. But uh, I think uh, I get four weeks, so I'm going to be very concise. So let's start by just introducing the topic. I'll attempt to orient us by asking what's helpful to know up front about predestination as we prepare to study it. And I'll orient us by asking six questions. And This is an unusually long introduction. Consider it an introduction to four sermons. All right, so first question. What if I'm anxious or fearful about studying predestination? So my wife, Jenny, was anxious about my writing a book on predestination. She gets anxious when I write about certain topics, like suffering. She's like, oh no, don't write about suffering. We know what's going to happen to us. So I'm writing about predestination. And she, she believes what the Bible teaches about God's choosing to save some and not others. But it was frightening to her to, to dig deeper there. It was frightening, especially because some people she loves are not believers. And the thought of, of digging into this teaching to her felt like digging into a dark hole. And she wasn't sure she'd like what she found. But each time she read a portion of my book as I was writing it, Uh, she came away with a completely different emotion. Her heart was filled with humility and praise and comfort, and that surprised her. So I hope her testimony encourages you. Friend, if, if you think predestination is hard to understand and hard to treasure, you're not alone. Many Christians have struggled with being assured that God has chosen them, that they are God's elect. And most of us have loved ones who are rejecting Christ. So if you're anxious or fearful about studying predestination, take courage. All Scripture 
is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's true about what God says about predestination. Now, predestination is a controversial issue because some people think that it would be unjust for God to choose to save only some individuals. So that leads to my second question here. How should we talk about such a controversial and emotional issue? How should we do this? Well, carefully, reasonably, humbly, convictionally, straightforwardly, soberly, joyfully. Here are two ways that we could respond to predestination. We should respond with humility. But unfortunately, many often respond sinfully with pride. That's not our goal here. We should respond by praising the Lord for choosing to save us, not with a sinful kind of divisiveness. And we should respond with this overwhelming comfort that God has a plan for us and for all things and not with anxiety. So by God's grace, we want to respond with humility and praise and comfort. And I want to talk about humility in particular. To talk about predestination in a humble way means that our posture as we approach the issue is to place ourselves under Scripture's authority and unreservedly affirm and cherish whatever God has revealed. That, that should be our posture. Here's a third question. What do these terms mean? What do predestination, election, and reprobation mean? So when you address a controversial topic, it's crucial to clearly define terms up front. So let's define these three words. So in the New Testament, the, the word predestine means decide upon beforehand, to predetermine. So for God to predestine a person means for him to predetermine a person's destiny. So here's how I define this first term, predestination. God predetermined the destiny of certain individuals for salvation, we call that election, and others for condemnation, we call that reprobation. So you see that predestination has two parts to it. The first part is choosing to save some. You could call that election or positive predestination. And the second part is choosing not to save others, reprobation or negative predestination. So now what I'm going to do is double-click on these two words, election and reprobation. Here's how I define election. God sovereignly and graciously chose to save individual sinners. And here's what reprobation means. God sovereignly and justly chose to pass over non-elect sinners and punish them. So here are some ways that the Bible contrasts these two. In Romans 9, uh, vessels of mercy, which God has prepared beforehand for glory, and vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In Romans 11, the elect and the rest. In John 10, Jesus' sheep and not Jesus' sheep. So for election, this is positive predestination for eternal life with distinct goals in accord with God's love, mercy, and grace. 
and for reprobation, this is negative predestination for eternal death with distinct goals in accord with God's wrath, power, and justice. And that word, reprobation, you may not have heard that before. It doesn't appear in the Bible, uh, but it's a common label that theologians use for a reality that I believe the Bible teaches. And I plan to address that in Sermon 4. So these definitions of predestination and election and reprobation that I just shared, uh, these are standard ways that Reformed theologians use the term. Now let's move to question four. We'll probably spend the most time on this question in the introduction. What are the two main ways theologians have understood predestination? And here's why I'm asking the question. If you were to walk into a room where two people were sitting on chairs talking to each other and they had been there for hours in, the, in this conversation, it would be respectful and responsible for you to have a basic understanding of what they were talking about before you, you weighed in on the conversation, right? So as we consider predestination, it's helpful to remember that we're entering a conversation that has been going on for centuries, centuries. Uh, theologians have been talking about this. So before we continue that conversation, it would be respectful and responsible to have a basic understanding of what some influential theologians have argued. Specifically, it would be helpful to be familiar with two major positions that Christians have held on predestination. They're commonly called Arminianism, that's after a theologian named Jacob Arminius, and Calvinism, after a theologian named John Calvin. Now, please don't let those labels scare you. Uh, I'm using those labels because they are common nicknames or shorthand for different ways of thinking about predestination, and I'm guessing many of you have heard them before, so I thought it'd be helpful just to name them and define them so we're all talking about the same thing. So let's begin by getting our bearings here by surveying these two main ways that theologians have understood predestination in the context of these larger theological frameworks for understanding the Bible. And for those of you who uh, have studied this a bit more, just know that I am focusing on the mainstream teachings in Arminianism and Calvinism here. I'm not going to get sidetracked on intramural debates. So let's compare Calvinism and Arminianism on, on six issues. Here are the six issues. God's sovereignty, man's depravity, God's election, Christ's atonement, the Spirit's grace and man's will, and the believer's perseverance. And issues three and five there most directly concern predestination. But I'm going to talk about all six because they're interconnected. You can't talk about one of these without talking about the others. They all connect. So here's the first issue. God's sovereignty. According to Arminianism, God's sovereignty is general. So God's in charge of everything, but he doesn't ordain everything. For example, God does not ordain sin. Rather, he allows sin to preserve man's free will. According to Calvinism, God's sovereignty is meticulous. God is in charge of everything, and he ordains everything. Here's issue two, man's depravity. Now notice, both of these say the same thing in that first paragraph. As a result of Adam's fall, man is radically, that is at the root, depraved, and thus cannot repent and believe in Jesus without God's special grace. But then they, they describe that differently. They explain that differently. 
So for Arminianism, God gives that special grace to everyone. Arminians call it prevenient grace. For Calvinism, God gives that special grace to only some people, the elect, the chosen, and this grace is effective and invincible. Here's issue three, God's election. For Arminianism, God's election is conditional. That is, God chose to save sinners he foresaw on the condition he foresaw would freely choose to believe in Christ. For Calvinism, God's election is unconditional. God sovereignly chose to save individual sinners based on no human conditions, but based solely on his forelove. Issue four is Christ's atonement. For Arminianism, the intention of Christ's atonement, his, his death to save sinners, is general. That is, it provides salvation for all people without exception. So Christ's atonement provides payment for the sins of all people, but God applies it only to those who repent and believe, the elect. For Calvinism, the intention of Christ's atonement is definite. That is, it provides and accomplishes salvation for a definite group, for the elect. Christ's atonement provides payment for the sins of only the elect, and God applies it to only the elect. Issue five is the Spirit's grace and man's will. For Arminianism, the Spirit's saving grace is universal and ultimately resistible. That is, every individual receives prevenient grace and can reject it. So man has a free will in the sense that he can equally make alternative choices in the same circumstances. So man is equally free to choose or reject Christ. And theologically, repentance and faith precede, come before, and cause regeneration. That's God giving new life to a spiritually dead person. For Calvinism, the Spirit's saving grace is particular and ultimately irresistible. That is, it's persuasively effective for the elect. So man has a free will in the sense that he, he chooses what he most wants. The Spirit does not force a man to repent and believe against his will. The Spirit transforms a man's heart with the result that he wants to repent and believe. Theologically, regeneration precedes and causes repentance and faith. And finally, issue six is the believer's perseverance. For Arminianism, genuine believers can finally fall away from the faith. They can fail to continue in the faith, and thus will not be eternally saved. For Calvinism, genuine believers, that is the elect, cannot finally fall away from the faith. Believers continue in the faith, we call that perseverance, continuing, because God preserves them as eternally secure. We call that preservation. So those are six issues comparing these two ways of looking at, 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 these, at, at the Bible. And, and the first issue here God's sovereignty is the overarching category. It's, so you, if you start here, you really are arguing from the greater to the lesser. If God's sovereignty is meticulous, that is, if God is in charge of everything and he ordains everything, then it follows that he also ordains every human's eternal destiny. It's, so it's like arguing, if, if I can pick up a refrigerator, then I can also pick up a gallon of milk that's in the refrigerator. If God ordains everything, then he also ordains a person's salvation or not. Now, the final five issues here, 
correspond to a popular acronym for Calvinists. Maybe you've heard it. You heard the acronym TULIP. So here it is, uh, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Uh, it's, it's a very popular acronym. Uh, we're stuck with it. I don't like it. Uh, let me show you why I think it's misleading. Uh, but it's just so memorable, so well-known, it's here to stay. So here's, here's why I think it's, it's misleading and, and, and the terms that I think are a little better. So for total depravity, I like the term man's pervasive corruption. Again, I don't have an acronym to replace it with, so I'm not, I'm not in that whole thing. So total, total may sound to some people like absolute or utter, but the point is not depravity's depth as if every person is as wicked as he possibly can be. The, the point is depravity's breadth. Every aspect of a person is corrupt. Body, will, mind, conscience. So the corruption is all pervasive. It's like salt permeating salt water or, or chlorine permeating pool water. Pervasive corruption describes our condition. And total inability describes the result of that condition. That is, an, an unregenerate man cannot repent and believe in Jesus apart from God's special saving grace. Now the you, unconditional election. I like the term the Father's sovereign election. Unconditional may sound to some people like arbitrary, as if God the Father selected individuals randomly or whimsically, whimsically, like, like picking names out of a hat or, or flipping a coin. The point is that before God created the world, he sovereignly chose to save specific individuals by name without basing his decision, his choice, on any human conditions. The all-wise God has reasons for everything he does, and we just don't know what all of them are. And I plan to focus on the Father's sovereign election in Sermon 2. Now for the, the L, limited atonement. I love the term definite atonement, Christ's definite atonement, because limited may sound to some like tiny, weak, sparse, defective. But Christ's atonement is global and powerful and lavish and perfect. The point is that Christ did not die for everyone in the same way. Christ definitively provided and accomplished redemption for particular individuals, the same individuals whom the Father sovereignly chose and whom the Spirit regenerates. So the members of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, work together, never contrary to each other. They work in a unified way to accomplish the same goals. And the I, irresistible grace, I like the term, the Spirit's effective grace. Irresistible may sound to some people like what a robber does, attack, force, steal, or like what a prostitute does, tempt, allure, seduce. And of course, irresistible may sound like it means impossible to resist, like it's impossible to resist God's grace. But of course, it's possible to resist God's grace. There are examples of that in the Bible, like Acts 7.51 says it explicitly. The point is that it's impossible to ultimately resist God's special saving grace because that grace is effective. It, it successfully produces the result that God intends because it's invincible. It's too powerful to defeat or overcome. When God's spirit causes a man to be born again, 
He gives spiritual life to a man who was spiritually dead. Is that not your experience if you're a Christian? He changes that man's heart by effectively calling him so that he willingly, not reluctantly, not protestingly, but he willingly comes to Christ. And then the P, perseverance of the saints, slightly prefer the word God's preservation of the saints because perseverance may sound like a believer's activity is the key. But the point is that believers persevere because God preserves them. We work out our salvation because God works in us, the willing and the working. So TULIP presents a logical order. It starts with man's desperate need to be saved, and then the rest explains how God saves his people. So God the Father chose to save specific individuals without basing his choice on the condition of faith, and God the Son atoned particularly for those individuals whom the Father chose to save. God the Spirit effectively calls them to himself, and then God enables them to persevere until they die or Christ returns. For more on, on TULIP, I recommend that you watch the TULIP seminar that Pastor John taught right here on this stage in 2013. And I also recommend an article that he wrote for our church called What We Believe About the Five Points of Calvinism, which he turned into a book called Five Points. Pastor Stephen plans to link to these resources for you in his North Campus Update email this Friday. So you can be looking for that. Now, you've probably figured it out by now, but I'll say it in case you're wondering. I am a Calvinist. Um, I use the term Calvinism as theological shorthand. I don't wear that on my sleeve, don't have it tattooed on me anywhere, uh, because people often misunderstand what that word means, what Calvinism means. For example, some people think that Calvinists don't believe in evangelism or missions, which is not true. I plan to say more about that in Sermon 3. So I, I don't follow John Calvin in a proud or partisan way, but I'm convinced that what theologians label Calvinism faithfully expresses what the Bible teaches. And my goal in this sermon series is not to explain and defend what Calvin wrote about predestination. My goal is to explain and defend what the Bible teaches about predestination. So that's where we're going. And that leads to question number five. How important is predestination? Because some of you might be thinking, I'm not convinced of what you believe yet. How important is this? Some Bible teachings are more important than other Bible teachings. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And those words, first importance, I delivered to you of first importance, that signifies that not everything is of first importance. Some things in the Bible are not of first importance, which means everything is important that's in the Bible, but some things are more important than other things. And I think we can distinguish at least three levels of importance. We can call them first level, second level, third level, or essential for the Christian faith, crucial for church health, but not essential for the Christian faith, and important, but not essential for the Christian faith or crucial for church health. Or you could call them dogma, doctrine, disputable matters, fundamental teachings, denominational distinctives, matters of conscience. So basically, this, in this first level, these issues are essential and most central to Christianity. You can't deny these teachings and still be a Christian in, in any meaningful sense. Like, uh, God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, Jesus is fully God and fully human. Uh, 
those sorts of, of doctrines that are just common to all Christians across all time. Second level issues are crucial for church health and they create boundaries between Christians like different churches and different denominations. And these have a bearing on what sort of church you're a part of. For example, you don't have to hold a particular view on baptism. Like is it only for believers or is, can it also be for, for infants? You don't have to hold a particular view on, on baptism or church government to be a Christian. But it's challenging for a church to have a healthy unity when its leaders disagree on, on these matters. And then third level issues are matters of conscience, disputable matters. They're not unimportant. They're, they're important, but they're not as important as one and two. And members of the same church should be able to disagree on these issues and still have very close fellowship with each other. And these, these issues might involve how you interpret a particular passage of Scripture, how you reach theological conclusions. Uh, for example, are angels made in the image of God or are only humans made in the image of God? I think we could disagree on, on that and still be fellow members. Uh, or it could be practical questions like how should we think about video games? There is a right way, but I'll just keep going. <laughs> okay, so where does predestination fit here? Well, predestination is, is not a first-level issue. You don't have to affirm the Calvinist view of predestination to be a Christian. Some of the kindest Christians I know are Arminians, dear friends I have. Uh, so definitely not a first-level issue. Nor is predestination a third-level issue. It's not merely a matter of conscience that's relatively unimportant for proclaiming the gospel and living in light of the gospel. Predestination is I think, a second-level issue. I think it's crucial for a church to be robustly healthy. It's crucial for our serious joy in God. That's why we're devoting four weeks to this. Now, here's how our church treats predestination. We have two different statements of faith. We have one for the pastors, or we also call them elders, and we have one for all the members. We call one the elder affirmation of faith and the other one the congregational affirmation of faith. Here's what the elder affirmation of faith says in section 3. It's called God's eternal purpose and election. We believe that God, from all eternity, in order to display the full extent of his glory for the eternal and ever-increasing enjoyment of all who love him, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeably ordain and foreknow whatever comes to pass. That's articulating God's meticulous sovereignty. And, and the next paragraph in, uh, in explains that further. We believe that God upholds and governs all things, from galaxies to subatomic particles, from the forces of nature to the movements of nations, and from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons, all in accord with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself. Yet, in such a way that he never sins nor ever condemns a person unjustly, but that his ordaining and governing all things is compatible with the moral accountability of all persons created in his image. We believe that God's election is an unconditional act of free grace which was given through his son, Christ Jesus, before the world began. By this act, God chose before the foundation of the world those who would be delivered from bondage to sin and brought to repentance and saving faith 
in his son, Christ Jesus. So the elder affirmation of faith essentially upholds Calvinism, but without using that word. And the congregational affirmation of faith just upholds basic Christianity, plus baptism for believers and not for infants. So you can be a member of our church without wholeheartedly affirming what the elder affirmation of faith says about predestination. We should know that our church teachers, pastors, Sunday school teachers, Bible study leaders, small group leaders, we teach in accord with the elder affirmation of faith, not against it. And we think it's crucial that our pastors and other teachers be aligned on predestination and other issues related to God's meticulous sovereignty because we think it directly affects how we make disciples. It affects how we preach and how we pray and sing and counsel. We think it's crucial for faithfully glorifying the sovereign God. That's why we would consider it a second level issue. But if you are not convinced of what we believe about predestination, please know we are glad you are here. You are welcome here. We want you to to be here and think through these things with us. We want to help you continue to study and understand the scriptures like the Bereans so that you can see for yourself if, things, if these things are so. So, welcome. And finally, question six, introducing the whole series. How will we explore what the Bible teaches about predestination? So, in this sermon series, I'm attempting to answer the question, what does the whole Bible say about predestination? So in each sermon, I plan to be citing and explaining passages from all over the Bible. And this is unusual for our sermons, which typically focus on explaining and applying one relatively short passage of Scripture. So to answer that question, what does the whole Bible say about predestination? I've crafted and arranged 15 questions, and today we will consider the first three. Introduction over. Let's get started (laughs) with question one. What is the goal of election? That's our first question. What's the goal of election? And why begin with this question? Why begin with the goal of election? I'm beginning here because we can better understand what we see if we know what the goal is. For example, I can better understand why men are blowing up part of a mountain with dynamite if I know that their goal is to build a tunnel for a highway through that part of the mountain. Otherwise, it's a bunch of explosions that I, don't, I can't explain. Similarly, if we understand God's goal for election, then we can better understand what happens that leads to that goal. And God has revealed two basic goals for election, to save us and to praise God's glorious grace. And the, the Bible depicts these goals in many ways, and I'm going to give you some samplings. I'm leaving a lot on the cutting room floor, okay? So here's a first example of his goal to save us. It's to save us on the day of the Lord. Let me show this to you from 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul thanks God that God chose to save the Thessalonian believers. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved. God chose us to save us from our sins and the judgment we deserve. And in the context of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, this salvation likely refers to when God saves us on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is when God will decisively 
judge and defeat his enemies and deliver and vindicate his people. So election encourages us that we are beloved by the Lord. It encourages us that God loves us and that our future salvation on judgment day depends on God's choice, not our effort. God chose us in order to save us. Here's another aspect of of the goal being to save us. It's that we should be holy and blameless before God. In Ephesians 1, Paul praises God because he, God the Father, chose us, that's election, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. And here's the goal, that we should be holy and blameless before him. One goal of election is that when we stand before God, we will be morally pure and blameless. An election encourages us that we will be holy and blameless before God. Can you imagine what that will be like to be completely free from our sins? And we can praise God now for this glorious work that he will do. An election also motivates us to be holy and blameless now. Here's a a third way, uh, elaborate on God's goal to save us. It's to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Paul writes this in Romans 8, 29, those whom he, whom God foreknew, he also predestined, and here's the goal, to be conformed to the image of his Son. So one goal of election is to conform us to the image the likeness, the appearance of God's Son. And that includes our moral character and even our physical bodies. So election encourages us that we will be conformed to the image of God's Son. Wow. It also encourages us and motivates us to be conformed more and more to the image of God's Son now. So that's a beautiful goal. God's goal of election is to save us. And here's a second goal to praise God's glorious grace. And I'll share this with you first negatively. To shame the elite so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And elite there means a group of people considered to be superior in a society or organization. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. I've labeled this A, B, C because then the next lines correspond with those. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Look what Paul says three times. God chose. God chose. God chose. And whom did God choose? Mostly low-status people, the uneducated, the non-influential, the socially disdained. And for what purpose did God choose these low-status people? To shame the wise, to shame the strong, to bring to nothing things that are. And for what purpose did God do all of that? Last line. 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Election humbles us so that we cannot boast that God chose us because of us. God didn't choose us because of our status or our accomplishments or our character or our abilities. We are weak, and election is 100% a gracious gift from God so that God gets all the glory. And here's a positive way to say that. The goal of election is to praise God's glorious grace and God's glory. How often do we think about election when we think about praising God for choosing to save us? That's the very first blessing that Paul specifies in his opening prayer in Ephesians 1. It starts off, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what's the evidence? What's the first specific basis for praising God for for blessing us? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Election. Praise God because he chose us. And of the many goals for election, this one is ultimate. Look what what he writes later in this prayer. In love, he he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Here it is. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And again, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Here it is again. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. That's the ultimate purpose of election. God designed us to praise him. And he designed us to get a satisfying delight in praising him. We most glorify God when he most satisfies us. That's what God made us for. So election motivates us to praise God for his glorious grace and his glory. We are sinners, so it's impossible for us to earn a right standing before God. But God predestined us according to his good pleasure so that we might be to the praise of his glory. So how can we summarize the goal of election in a single sentence? We could say it like this. The goal of election is for God to save us so that we might praise him or so that we praise him for his glorious grace. The goal of election is for God to save us so that we praise him for his glorious grace. That's question one. Love it. Let's go to question two. When did God choose to save humans? When? When exactly did God choose to save people? Does it occur at some point after your birth or or, or while a person is a baby in the womb or before conception? Well, Paul explicitly answers this question here, Ephesians 1, 4. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ chose us in him when? Before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Well, that phrase, that precise phrase, occurs two other times in the Bible. They both refer to when God the Father loved or foreknew God the Son. So it's John 17, 24 and 1 Peter 1, 20. Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. It means before creation. And then Christ was foreknown 
before the foundation of the world, a time prior to creation. So when Paul says that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ chose us in him before the foundation of the world, he means that God chose us in Christ before creation. Not merely before our choosing Christ, not merely before our birth, not merely before our conception, not merely before our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents. God chose us before he created the heavens and the earth. So to summarize, when did God choose to save humans? God chose to save humans before he created the world. And our final question for today, question three, did God choose to save individuals? So I've already defined election like this. Election is positive predestination. God sovereignly and graciously chose to save individual sinners. So I've already said basically, yes, he chose to save individuals, but now I need to defend that. Uh, I, need to, I need to back up and clarify that I'm def- defining a specific aspect of election. So election is either corporate or individual. Corporate election is choosing a group of people. Individual election is choosing specific individuals. And then election can be either to serve or to save. So at least four different kinds. Let me give you examples of these four kinds. So first, corporate election to serve. God chose the people of Israel. This corporate election is not for salvation, but for special favor and service. Moses tells Israel, the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Second kind, individual election to serve. Key example is the Messiah, Christ. He came not to be saved. This is not an election for him to be saved. It's an election for him to save others. The Lord refers to the Messiah as my servant, my chosen, my, my elect in whom my soul delights. So that's an individual election to serve. Here's a third example, a third category, corporate election to save. So three examples of God's choosing to save groups are most prominent in Scripture. Uh, Elect Israelites. So God chose to save only some Israelites. Paul describes that remnant as the elect, as a group, the elect in Romans 11.7. Or elect Gentiles. James refers to a subset of Gentiles as a group as chosen by God in Acts 15, 14. Or you could refer to all of God's people as a group as a chosen race, as in 1 Peter 2, 9. Now, some theologians think that this third kind of election, corporate election to save, is the main kind of election in the New Testament. But I believe that the New Testament emphasizes this fourth kind of election, individual election to save. And that's the topic of this series on predestination. Individual election is not just for service, but for salvation. God appointed specific individuals to eternal life. God chose you to be saved. The New Testament emphasizes repeatedly that God chose to save individuals. I'll show you just two more examples here. In Romans 9, which we plan to look at more carefully next week, in Sermon 2, Paul writes, So then, he has mercy on whomever, that's singular, on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever, singular, he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who, that's singular, who can resist his will? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another 
for dishonorable use? Again, this is, this is representing election as saving specific individuals. Another example is this, at the end of Romans in a list of greetings, Paul says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. I love it. Rufus, chosen in the Lord. We can say that about each one of you who are, are one of Christ. You, individually, are chosen in the Lord. So the group as a whole is chosen. Each individual in that group is chosen. So to summarize question three, did God choose to save individuals? Yes. God chose to save individuals. We're going to stop there and pick up with the next questions next week, but let's just pause. If you are like me, then when you start to study these truths that God has revealed about his choosing to save people before the foundation of the world, your heart is just bursting with praise, with gratitude. So let's respond to these truths by expressing gratitude and praise to God, first by praying together and then by singing. So pray with me. We praise you, Father, that the goal of election is for you to save us so that we will praise you for your glorious grace. We praise you for choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before you. Thank you, God, for choosing to save us before you created the world. It's humbling and encouraging that we are part of the eternal purpose that you've realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And thank you, Father, for choosing to save individuals, for choosing to save me and Dan and that brother sitting over there and that sister sitting over there. You didn't choose to save merely a group, but each and every individual in the group. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.